All right, here's, here's what I want to do. It, it's Romans chapter 8, and in some ways I feel uh, like we are, um, we've come on a long journey through Romans. If you're, if you're just starting out with us here, we've been in Romans 1 through 7, but it's okay. You've picked a great Sunday to pick up, all right? So, long journey to the base of Mount Everest, if you will. In, in Romans 8, it's kind of the Mount Everest of the Bible. I say this about a lot of passages and a lot of chapters in the Bible, and I always mean it, but, but, but here's what I would say about Romans chapter 8. It is probably the chapter I have personally, as my life, Ross, as a believer in Christ, spent most of the last 10 years, and it is a very significant place for me. It's a place of beauty for me. It's a place of worship for me. It's a place of encouragement and conviction. And um, it, 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 of, of, of the chapters and uh, the, uh, of the Bible, places in the Bible that have shaped my life, I would say Romans 8 has been the most significant for me. And um, I'm not alone. There's a lot of people throughout history that have felt this way about Romans 6 and 7 and 8. And, and so I want you to know, we, we are, um, over the next couple of weeks, going to walk through Romans 8. And there are some moments you'll be like, hey, I think we're getting high. The air feels a little thin. You know, I, I'm, I'm feeling kind of sleepy here. And, and just know that's not me. I mean, um, I'm, all, I'm as entertaining as always. Um, <laughs> But, but, but there are things about what, what Paul's writing, about how, how we live this Christian life. I mean, how, we, how, how do we actually do this thing or experience this thing called Christianity? And what he's going to say is, ultimately, I mean, here's the big idea. You can't do it. God calls you to be holy and righteous and, and live this life um, in his son Jesus and you can't do it. And so what Romans 8 says is while you can't do it, and you've got to be clear about that, you can't do it, God can do it and is doing it in your life through the power of His Spirit, the supernatural power of His Spirit. And our problem, what we're wrestling with all the time is is living in the power of the Spirit versus our power, our efforts to do this Christian life thing that can only really be done in the Spirit and can't be done in our power. Listen, you, you will spend lots of your Christian life exerting your fleshly, natural, good-intentioned energy only to find yourself frustrated and disappointed and in, in struggling. And in, in, in the, in the challenge is not that we are working to, to make this thing happen in our life, but that we are yielding to what it is that God's doing through our life. So, so maybe I'd say it this, this way, that... that if the life you're living, I think this is what Paul is saying, if the life you're living does not require supernatural power, 
And when I say supernatural power, I mean power that comes from the Holy Spirit of God. He indwells you. If, if the life you're living doesn't require supernatural power, then you are hard-pressed to call it the Christian life. It might be a moral life. It might be a good life. It might even be a life people look up to and go, you know, that's a good person. But it's not the Christian life. So think about it this way. Let me give you an image and see if I can remember to come back to this image as we're walking through the passage. But if I don't remember, you remember, okay? And so think about it this way. So God has called us. He to be holy and to be righteous and to, um, um, uh, yeah, to, to be like he is, you know, to, to be perfect, to, to, to conform to the image of his son, to be transformed into his likeness. But the truth is, that's not anything we can do. God might as well say to us, okay, here's what I want you to do. Now, now I want you to fly. And you'd be like, you know, it's really great that you said that, God, because I really want to fly. I mean, I've always wanted to fly. Or, you know, as a believer, this is part of those longings. You, know, so you want to fly. I mean, what little kid hadn't dreamed of flying? But it's as though God say, listen, okay, now you're a believer. Here's the deal. Fly. And you're like, okay. You know, and so you find some tall place uh, to, you know, run and jump off of, and you flap your arms. You know what's going to happen? The law of gravity is going to take over. And the law of gravity, he's going to speak about it like the law of sin and death. But he's going to say, you've been set free from the law of sin and death, and now you live in the law of the Spirit. So think about this. The law of the Spirit is like the law of aerodynamics, okay? You cannot defeat the law of gravity, but you can get on an airplane that does. You cannot fly, but you can be in something that does fly. And so what you need is you need a power that's greater than what you have, greater than your willpower, greater than your resolve, greater than really your desires to do good. You need a power that will do it in you. All right, so that's the idea. This is what Paul's talking about. Look at um, verses 1 through 4. Let's start there, and we'll see how far we go. So he says this. He, um, he says, so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so if you remember, Paul ended chapter 7. We were in chapter 7 back in December, early December, and Paul's wrestling with this thing going on. He's like, okay, I see this thing happening inside of me. I want to do the things of God, yet I find that I'm not doing the things of God. I'm doing the things I, I hate. I, and the things I don't want to do, I look up and I find I'm doing those things. And we talked about it as though what Paul's experiencing is his past has waged war on his future for his present moment. And we all feel that tension that our past, our old man, our old self, those old ways, those habits, those echoes, those things we're so familiar with are waging war on our future, our reality, our hope, our destination for our present. In fact, Paul's going to end 
chapter 7 is you say, what a wretched man I am. Who can deliver me? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus delivers him. That's why when he starts out in chapter 8, it's the most beautiful chapter, he begins with in Christ. No condemnation for those that are in Christ. You know how he ends the chapter? Nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ. Everything he talks about in between is in those bookmarks between in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're told to fly, now you can fly, but not in your own power. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who walk, let's use the analogy, not according to the law of gravity, but according to the law of aerodynamics, the Spirit of God in you. There is this reality, and the reality that he begins with in verse 1 is that you have been set free. In the power of the Spirit, he's going to tell us three things. We've been united with Christ. We have a whole new way of seeing the world. And we have an, actually, we have a factually new identity. And, and the first thing to know about this, we are in union with Christ through the power of the Spirit. We've been united with him. He is in us. We are in him, is that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And the reason that there's no condemnation, he's very emphatic about it, is because we have been, verse 2, we've been justified. What we needed to stand right before God, Jesus has done that. And the second thing is, is that Jesus was our substitute. So what we owed God in obedience and for our sin, which is death, Jesus was our substitute. He steps in and is our perfect obedience. And he steps in and he suffers our death. This is why we can be united with him. He is our obedience. His death is our death. And Paul argued earlier, his resurrection is our resurrection. See, there was a failure of the law. One writer said it this way. The law, it wasn't a failure of the law. The failure was us. The, the law may order, but it can't affect. It, it may command, but it doesn't equip. It condemns. It, it doesn't enable. So the law is not bad. We're the ones that were the problem. We couldn't do it. And I think what happens is, is that even as believers in our, in our desire to, you know, live this Christian life, we end up doing it too often in our own energy. We do it too often not united, not in the reality that we're united with Christ, but in this reality of our, of our own strength. And in four ways that I think you know that this is happening in you. One is... Is, so when you have this non-union thinking, you think, okay, it's been, the keys have been handed to you, you got to drive the car there, is when you begin to focus primarily on what your responsibility is. 
When you begin to think about the Bible or, 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 or Christianity and you go to the Bible with questions like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible so that it can tell me what I'm supposed to be doing for God. See, then you're not thinking in terms of being in union with Christ. You're thinking in terms of, okay, this is my optimism of my flesh. What am I supposed to do and how can I achieve it? See, many of us, I think we're driven by this. We, we want to prove our spirituality. We want to prove it to God. We want to prove it to ourselves. We want to prove it to others. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. So, so Romans 8, huge chapter. I mean, I look at the chapter a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, I wonder if anybody noticed if we just stopped Romans and like went to something else. Because I'm standing at the bottom of Mount Everest thinking, how in the world am I going to, how am I going to preach this? You know, and then I'm, I'm wrestling inside with, okay, well, I better study really hard. I better work really hard so everybody will know how hard I worked and that you'll think I'm spiritual and that God will be pleased with, with how hard I worked, you know, to make it. And, and, the, and then I have to step back and go, no, 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 wait a minute. I don't have to prove to anybody. That's, that's not what the Christian life is about. You know, to step back and just go, We're not, this is a magnificent passage. This is a passage, this is the word of God. It, it speaks on its own. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-inch. It's going to do what it's going to do. And I can rest in that. And I can rest that, you know what, I can work hard and I want to. But it's not so that you're impressed. It's because of what I've been called to and what I have desire to do. And, 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 and then there's something about the Spirit then working in me and in you because God wants us to know this you know God wants you to know the truth of this passage more than I want you to know the truth of this passage and I really want you to know it well so when we um, when we the focus is our, you know we, what our responsibility is the other one is when our spirituality we know we're not living out the union we have in Christ when our spirituality is driven and determined by a list. And so oftentimes we think, well, the old covenant, you know, this is, it was this list, you know what I mean? What is it that constitutes in my mind, in my mind, what does it mean to be spiritual? There, you have your list. And, and, and so, listen, there's nothing wrong with a list. It's a great tool. It's a terrible master. Your spirituality isn't graded by or dependent upon your list of the things you should and shouldn't do. You know, it's like the illustrate. It's like um, I always uh, associate Chuck E. Cheese with the, the alligator game. You know, where you get the mallet and you, alligator heads come up. I mean, this, that's the kind of life you're living. I mean, you hit that one down, and then another one comes up, and you're just trying to manage the alligators, and it's. It's maddening. Thirdly, you're living out of union. When, when repentance becomes your confession, becomes a promise to try harder, a promise to do better. You ever prayed a prayer like this? Lord, Lord if you'll forgive me again, 
I'll never, I'm never, just the last time. So don't raise your hand. You ever prayed that prayer? That sound familiar to you? Or, or just one more chance. Do you give me one more chance and I'll make it right? That's not repentance. Fourthly, when your primary response to sin is that you're surprised. Do you know what you've done? If you are surprised by the sin in your life, what you reveal is the confidence you have in your flesh. Listen, but Paul, he, he's very honest about sin. He grieves over it. He hates it. He mourns it. He cries out for deliverance. But you know what he never is? He's never surprised by it. You know you're not living out the union you have with Christ when those things are evident. So he's our substitution in, in obedience. He is our obedience. And the Spirit of God in us. He is the obedience of Christ through us. And then we're also, he's our substitute, in death. Christ took our death, our condemnation, so we are not condemned. And if we count on anything else besides his death and his resurrection, then we are not in Christ. Well, so he gives us this reality. He tells us the, um, the reasons for it because Christ is our substitute, and so we're united to him. Here's the result. The result is sanctification. The result is what happens in you through the power of God, through his spirit, is that you, your life becomes more possessed by that which possesses you, Jesus. Your life becomes more empowered by the spirit and less empowered by your own energy. Maybe I'd say it this way. What God requires of you, what God requires of me, requires him to do it. What God requires of you can't be done on your own. It requires that he do it. The, the righteous requirement of the law is this. So, I mean, what is it? What, what is this? It's love. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 22, this is the greatest two commandments, and I'll sum it up in a phrase. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the deal. You can't love God the way he calls you to love him. And you can't love others the way God calls you to love them. What he requires of you in that love, he has to do through you by his spirit. This radical, risk-taking, supernatural love. And that's why what he requires, he has to do. That which God's looking for in our lives requires his supernatural power. And listen, your sanctification, your spiritual growth, your Christian life, it cannot be reduced to what your flesh can manage on its own. That's not sanctification. See, I did what, what the flesh does, what, what our flesh does is it seeks to reduce what God requires to manageable terms on its own. I think far too many churches, for far too long, I mean, we, we've, we've said, okay, this is, this is what spirituality is, okay? So, you don't drink 
You don't dance. You don't chew. Or, or go with girls that do. <laughs> and listen, I, generally, you know, it's a fine advice, I guess. But you can do that in your strength all day long. So you know what that means? That's not spiritual growth. That's not the Christian life. If, if you can manage it, then it's not, listen, the flesh loves to take the requirements of God and reduce them to what it can do. And God is saying the only way that any of what he requires of you can be fulfilled in you is by him and through him and because his son, Jesus, according to the power of his Holy Spirit. Augustine said the law was given that grace would be sought. And grace was given that the law would be fulfilled. And when the law is fulfilled in our life, when our life begins to reflect God's righteousness and perfection and holiness and glory, then he, then he gets all the glory. Because he's both the, the, the one to be honored and the source of that honor. And in the process, you know what happens? We're so satisfied. But we love it. God's given us desires through the power of his spirit. We see those desires satisfied. And we know we couldn't have done that on our own. We find that we're flying when our whole life's been stuck on the ground. There are subtle ways that we, that we try to do all this according to our flesh. There are things, maybe let's say there are things that we mistake for sanctification. One is our intellect. Well, I've gotten smarter. I've, I've grown in my knowledge of things. Well, that's not necessarily sanctification. Hopefully, this is like you got older and you're reading. I mean, you know, like you just sort of naturally taking on information in life. You know, the other is, is we, we overestimate or we put too much um, 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 stock or, or, or hope in our willpower, the sheer willpower to do the spiritual disciplines. So the spiritual disciplines are great. If your alarm goes off at 6 a.m., you jump right out of bed, great. It doesn't mean you're more sanctified. It's a good thing. It just doesn't get you anything. I think we mistake our personalities sometimes. Listen, some people, some of you just have personalities that just get along and are easier to be around than others. But that doesn't mean you're more spiritual. Your personality can't be mistaken for your sanctification. Neither can your heritage. Just growing up in a godly home or around godly people, I mean, that doesn't like get on you. You can't catch it. And yet so many of us, if all that was stripped away, I remember I had a professor in seminary. He was, a, he was our missions professor, and he'd gone, grew up in a Christian home, went to Christian college, went to seminary, uh, and then he was called to the mission field, finds himself over in um, you know, kind of Eastern Europe and dropped away. And he said, I, I had no idea how much I had mistaken my environment 
for my sanctification. All the constructs that were in place, all, all the things, and when he finds himself dropped in the middle of nowhere that is familiar or is godly, so I had mistaken where I came from for who I was. Well, in the power of the Spirit, you've been united to Christ. Now, the two, two other quick things I want you to see. For verses 5 through 8, he's going to say, not only that in the, in the power of the Spirit, not only have we been united with Christ, we've really been given new eyes through which to see the world. We've been given a new worldview that we did not have before. Look at what he says, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So, set your minds on things of the flesh. Literally, this is your worldview, how you see the world. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now you are seeing the world, your life, your work, your family, your situations, your money, your time. You're, you're seeing that now through the eyes of the Spirit, not through the eyes of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. God bids you to fly. You cannot. When you are looking at that through your own resources. The danger exists for believers and the confusion is this pursuit of sort of self-righteousness in our energy, bettering ourselves for a worldview that is from the Spirit. What affects your worldview? Well, what you read affects it. What you talk about affects it. Where you spend your time, what you watch, what you allow your, your mind, your eyes to linger on and think about. See, theology, theology, how we think about God directly and significantly affects our world view. So, when we begin to see the world through God's eyes, when we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, he, how do we notice, I mean, what are the results of that? Well, here's a couple of results. I think, one, you find that your mind's reprogrammed, that you begin to have a desire. You, you begin to know God and desire Him in ways that, that you become more and more comfortable with the God who says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And you let go of, God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing it my way. What's taking you so long? The result is when we begin to see, we begin to see that when we set our, our minds on the flesh to see, see life through God's eyes, we go, oh yeah, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. I dig that. I love it more and more and more. Another way 
is that we find that our, our longings, they're nourished. We're not extinguishing them, we're, we're nourishing them. See, we get a whole new set of desires, a whole new disposition. We set our heart on God, we set our, our, our minds in His Word and, 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 our, and our affections on His Son. We find that our new longings are nourished and, 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 and satisfied. God says, I, I, in Jeremiah, God said, I, I'm going to give them a new heart to be able to love me with. Peter says it in 1 Peter 2. Says, we're like newborn babes that, that crave spiritual milk. I remember when my kids were young, you know, it's like little infants, you know, just when they're born and then they're dreaming, you know, and they don't have anything to dream about but eating. You know what I mean? So you see them, you know, their, their little lips move, you know, like they're sucking. It's like, oh, they're dream, dreaming about a bottle or, you know, whatever. See, that's like us. I mean, it, it's innate. This, this desire, this hunger to be nourished is innate. In us, it, 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 it's at the core of who we are now. We've been given an appetite to indulge ourselves on the things of God. And it nourishes those cravings. When we see the world, we set our minds on the Spirit. It also strengthens us in the moment. You find in the moment, for the moment, you're strengthened. Well, for too many people, I think this spiritual life, this, you know, sort of knowing, um, you know, what it is to walk in the Spirit, what it is to see things through the eyes of the Spirit, we, we, we live too often thinking, okay, well, that's the exception in my life. And the reality, Paul's saying, no, 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 it's not exceptional. It's the new rule in your life. It's it's part of who you are. The Spirit of God has come and indwells you. He is empowering you. And so now it is no longer energy spent on you trying to become something. Now it is this energy to yield to, give in to what the Spirit of God is doing in you. It's the rule of our lives. So, so how do we set our minds on the Spirit? Well, firstly, ultimately, that's something that God does in us. So the better question is, how do we appropriate what we already possess? You don't have to go get anything. You already possess it. Now, how do you appropriate it? Well, so what does that mean? Anybody have books on their bookshelf that they haven't read? Yeah, one person, okay. Um, three, all right. So you have books on your bookshelf. They are yours. They are in your possession, but you have not read them. They're yours, but you haven't appropriated them. How do we appropriate what we already have? We don't have to get it. We don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to make it. We don't have to prove it. How do we appropriate what we already possess fully. Well, so, I, this is not rocket science, okay? You, you, so, the, when you spend time in God's Word, guess what? It's living, it's active, it's sharp. It, it, it reads you back. It does something. God's Word transforms us. It makes dead things come to life. And I think one of the things I would say, so, so I realize it's January the 5th. Some of you are five days behind now on your um, reading plan. 
summer, you're five days solid, you know, and it's like, oh, on Sunday, I'm going to get ahead, you know, and he's like, you're on day seven, and it's only the fifth. But you'll quit at Leviticus. <laughs> and, and so, listen, I, I think you should read through the Bible. I think it's great. I think it's a great thing to do. It's a great discipline. It's a great, you know, and it's not always about understanding it because God's Word always understands you whether you understand it or not. But some of it is. Maybe this morning it's, it's knowing where you are with God's Word and then just taking the next step. Maybe it's, you know what? I'm going to take a verse or a paragraph or maybe a chapter depending on where you are. And you know what? I'm going to think about that this week. I'm going to write it on a postcard. I'm going to put it in my car. I'm going to put it in a note on my phone. And I, I'm going to begin to I'm going to begin to see my life through what God's Word says here, realizing that this is just part of it. But, but starting where you are. I, listen, if, if you're unacquainted with God's Word, and, and listen, if you are, you're not alone in here. If you're unacquainted with God's Word, this is not a call for you to be a biblical scholar overnight. It is a call for you to know where you are and take the step towards building God's Word into your life. It will not return void. Here's another one. Um, I got a couple of these. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Done a lot more in six minutes than this. All right. Uh, so, so, you could go half-price books or, um, you know, if you ever go to like a rummage sale at a church or something like this, here, so keep a lookout for something like this. I have to describe it to you. All right, so what they're called is they're called hymnals. And <laughs> so used to back in the olden days before the words were in the, uh, were in the wall, they used to put words on, on paper and then they bound them in books and they called them hymnals. All right, H-Y-M-N-A-L-S. But, but you know what it was for years and centuries? It, it was the theology of the church. That's how the church, that's how we, by and large, most of us, learn most of our theology is through the words that we sing. And, and so if you find an old hymnal, you don't have to, you know, so I'm not saying, you know, wake up at six in the morning and, and you know, uh, bless your family with your rendition of, you know, um, number 387, you know, this week. And, you know, um, there's Proverbs about being a loud voice early in the morning. But, but reading through it, what the history of the church has said about things related to God. And, and see if that doesn't help nourish some of those longings. You know, kindle some of that in you that you already possess. Um, read a biography this year. You know, pick an old saint. Now, not to compare yourself to it. I mean, listen, they're more, way more awesome than you are. Did you know that? But to be encouraged and to be edified, you know, actually what you'll find out is they're a lot like you.
Did I read the Hudson Taylor deal? Did I read Hudson Taylor? No. Oh, listen to Hudson Taylor, okay? I knew I forgot something. All right. Hudson Taylor's a missionary. And so in the world of missions, like Hudson Taylor's, you know, he's like a mascot, okay? When you think of the great missionaries throughout the church, Hudson Taylor's one of those missionaries. He went on the mission field in 1853. And I don't know what you think about missionaries. I always thought, always think about missionaries. Man, these people are, I mean, these people have it together. They, I mean, they know the call of God. They know sacrifice. I mean, they've stepped out there. They are way more spiritual than I am. Hudson Taylor goes to the mission field, 1853. 16 years later, here's a letter that he writes to his sister, October 17th, 1869, after he's been on the mission field, after really the world already knows about Hudson Taylor. This is what he writes to his sister. This will encourage you. This is my mind's been greatly exercised for six or eight months past. Feeling the need personally and for the mission of more holiness and life and power in our souls. But personal need stood first and was the greatest. I feel the ingratitude and the danger and the sin of not living nearer to God. I prayed and agonized and strove and fasted and made resolutions, read the Word of God more diligently, sought more time for meditation and prayer. But all of that was without effect. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. Each day I brought it to register of sin and failure, of my lack of power. Then came the question, is there no rescue? Must it be thus to the end? This constant conflict and instead of victory, too often defeat. I hated myself. I hated my sin. And yet I gained no strength against it. I felt like I was a child of God. His spirit in my heart would cry out, Abba, Father. But to rise to my privileges as a child, I was utterly powerless to do so. Hudson Taylor would say to us, the only hope of living the Christian life is not through your discipline or through your struggling or through your trying your best. It is a miraculous life. It is not our best that matters. It is the best of God living through us and empowering us by His Spirit. And you already possess it if you're a believer. Well, he tells us some great I mean, there's way more. I'm going to say more about this next week, a lot more in the week after. Here's the danger when we don't set our mind on the flesh. You want to know the danger? The absence of what could have been. You know where the other danger is? The presence of what did not have to be. All of us in this room can identify with that. The absence of what could have been. And the presence of what didn't have to be. 
because our minds were set on the flesh. Our confidence was in our flesh. Our hope was in ourself. Our strength was trying to do or achieve or take hold of. When the application of our strength is really to yield, to enjoy, to, to know the possession that we already have. Well, change in your worldview, there's a change in your identity. Um, you, he's a believer, you know, you're in the Spirit, and the Spirit's in you is what he's going to say. He transforms all the mortality in your life and prepares you for immortality of eternal life. You are now in the process of being conformed to be united to a resurrected body that will live forever. But I didn't this way. Seems a little bit like Paul left something out, doesn't it? I mean, he's going to great lengths to describe the difference between someone living according to the flesh and living according to the spirit and natural reactions. So, okay, I want to live by the spirit. How do I do that? What do I go do today? Well, I pointed you in some directions to appropriate what's already yours, but if you leave here with a list of, okay, well, I'm going to go do these five things, then you missed it. Because I've searched through Romans 8, and one of the things that surprises me is the lack of imperatives, the lack of commands, no shoulds and should nots, not even very many helpful suggestions, no seven-step plan for becoming more spiritual. And you know what? It can be a little frustrating. Listen, Paul's going to give imperatives. He's going to command us, and they'll come, and we'll talk about that. Most of them are related to how we love one another, not how we love God, by the way. The Spirit governs our relationship with God. Instead of a bunch of steps, here's what Paul does over and over again. Instead of giving you a bunch of steps, he assures you of a promise. He assures you of a power that you already possess. And it's a supernatural power. It's a new mindset, a new sense of life, a new obligation, a new identity. Living or existing in the Spirit is not what we do for Him. No matter how hard we cannot fly, how hard we try. The Spirit is about, uh, the spiritual life is about what He does on our behalf. So let me say something super radical. In, in, in realizing I might be understood. So what do you do? The answer's not complicated. The flesh doesn't like to let go of control, though. So what do we do? Well, the answer today is not the answer I'm going to give you ultimately in a couple of weeks. But let me leave you this, with this today. I mean so much that this spiritual life, this Christian life is not something you can live on your own. It has to be lived supernaturally. That I would say the answer is, is nothing. What you can do. It's not pray more. 
It's not more family devotions. It's not obey the Ten Commandments better. It's not tithing. It's not a pile of good works. If the Spirit of God is in you, you are as spiritual as you're ever going to be. You're perfect and holy and righteous. And your energy is now taking hold of what God is already doing in you. So if there's one command, maybe it's this. Quit trying to fly on your own. Quit flapping your arms, hoping for takeoff. Rest inside of the comfort of the power you already possessed. Rest in the truth that God's Spirit lives in you to guide you, direct you, take you where you can never take yourself. So trust Him. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, the assurance of God's promise of His power in your life. Because if you, if the life you're living doesn't require supernatural power, then I think you're hard-pressed to call it the Christian life. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I've realized that in this room, on this day, There are men and women and children here that don't know you as Savior. Father, they, they may think of you as, as God and as someone to be pleased and as someone to try harder for and as, as someone they want on their side. They may think of your son as someone to imitate, to try to be like. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would just crash through those very hard thoughts that keep who you really are at distance. And that, Father, they'd come to the end of themselves knowing there's nothing they could ever do to please you on their own. There's nothing they could ever do to get to you on their own. That, Father, your son's life is not a life to be imitated. We could never imitate it. It's a life to be trusted that Jesus saved us. He came to die for us and to be raised from the dead so that we might have new life, not spend our days trying to improve our life so that you would approve. Everything we need, your son has done. Everything we need to be, your son Jesus is. And your word says that when we trust him, we are in Christ. And Father, you deposit your spirit and he lives in us and empowers us and leads us and guides us. And so I pray that you would do through your word what only you can do, and that is to get down into the crevices of our soul, to dissect us, to nurture our longings, Father, to draw our eyes to you. We pray this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.